you can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we will be covering the final two verses in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And so at this time, if you're able, I would ask you to stand with me and read verses 30 and 31 of John chapter 20. And then we will pray and begin. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, Your Word is before us. We have what is written in front of us. And I pray that we would know what it means to have life in His name. Father, help us. Help those who are yet without life, those who are dead in sin and separated from You. Through Your Word, Your living Word, I pray that they would come to know life in the name of Your Son. Father, I pray that those who are saved would have an understanding and experience of life deepened in their souls. Lord, work among us. Oh, Father, I pray that you would be with me. Lord, shut my mouth if I would say wrong things about you. But I do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give power and authority, grace from on high by the Holy Spirit to say what is true. Lord, let us not gather in solemn assembly without having met with our God. I pray you would move among us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this sermon is Life in His Name. Life in His Name. It's somewhat surreal to me to be looking at these verses. It was nearly four years ago that we started the Gospel of John by looking at these verses. The first sermon in the series was, <clears throat> Which Jesus do you follow? And we considered these verses as John's purpose statement for the whole book. And my heartfelt prayer is that we've all, as we've been going through John, have constantly been seeing in what is written what's true of Jesus and experiencing life in His name as we do so. And now, even though we have after today an entire chapter, 25 verses to consider in the Gospel, it's almost startling to me to see the end of the book. But I pray that today, as we look into these words that are given, that God would deal with us. By way of introduction, I'll just mention last week we were looking at the life of Thomas and his interaction with Jesus and how he doubted Christ's resurrection. And you'll recall we saw how Thomas's doubt was actually related to pride. <laughs> And how it ultimately led him to giving God an ultimatum. And less than I won't. And we considered also, in part, the significance of our gathering. You recall Thomas was not there when they met the week before. And he missed out on something. And when he was with them, he had the very thing he missed out on imparted to him. And we saw the pattern that's been established in that the church meets regularly every Sunday 
And how each individual that makes up our gathering as a church is important and necessary. And now this week, we're coming to consider again, as we have before, John's purpose statement for the entire book. And as we're going to see, the heart and the purpose that John's set before us in all of this book is that we would have life in Jesus' name. And so let me ask, just as sort of a a question at the beginning, do you have life in His name? What does it even mean to have life in His name? You know, the modern church today, it seems to always be dancing between two extremes. Either she's rocked by trial and weakness and difficulty. And let me just say this, that whenever you see the church being rocked by difficulty, it's not an indication necessarily that that is a weak church. As a matter of fact, the places in the world where the gospel is spreading the most is often where it's illegal to be a Christian. And so you have the side, the aspect of the church being weak and under trials and difficulty. And the other side is that she's so blinded by ease and comfort and worldly gains that the idea of us longing for a greater glory is almost a foreign concept, it seems. And there's always the ditch. There's always the struggle. Some will look at us and say, what we really need is some lofty, heightened experience of God that that we can go in our experiences and have all our confidence in what we've experienced. And those are the kind of people that put gold glitter in the air conditioner shaft so that people think God's doing something and say, look, it's angel dust. And we find in our text today a direct focus and statement concerning what has been written. We can never depart from what is written. And then on the other side, you have those who are stoically and coldly committed to orthodox truth, and yet there's no experience of life in his name. And the argument today is that as we're going to see in this text, John is referring to something which is meant to be enjoyed by Christians today. In his day, it was supposed to be enjoyed and in our day, it is as well. It's not a nebulous experience that we're only going to have in heaven someday that we can't know anything about right now. And yet, the life being described by John does not mean that we will go without suffering, poverty, and even hardships. You see, this life, life in His name, it is not temporally based. It's not rooted in temporal experience, but it is experienced temporally. What do I mean by that? Another way to put it is that our access to the enjoyment of life that John's pointing us to today, our access to it is not dependent on material blessings, but it is to be enjoyed as we live in this present material world. And so as Christian people, consider this. How often, you and I, do we wake up in the morning and we pray and we thank God for life? Thank God for another day. Often, even I've prayed this morning, God, thank you for giving us life For another day. It's a very good thing to do. Something we ought to do. But I want to know something. We're looking at life in His name. What is it that distinguishes the Christian's experience of life in His name from the non-Christian and their experience of life in the world? What's the difference? They live too, aren't they? Unless they're dead. If they're alive, there's, there's some sort of life going on there. What's the difference in our life? There are many unconverted people, non-Christian people, that have all the material blessings you could ever hope for. And yet they have no life in His name. What does it mean to have life in His name? Can you and I say that our prayers of thanksgiving are overflowing with joy that's unspeakable and filled with glory? 
The idea that our thanking God for life is something that surpasses our experiences here and now. What is the real difference between life and life in his name? I would set it forth to you now as an absolute truth, an undeniable truth that no person alive right now, including all of us in here, are experiencing life in his name to the degree that they might. And that's going to remain the case. We will not reach the spiritual heights of experiencing life in Christ until we die and go to be in his immediate presence. So long as we're in this sin cursed world, there's going to be a hindrance to our experience of life in his name. And that's true for us as Christians. How much more the unconverted who's still dead in their sins? You see, the most urgent need that that person that you, if you're lost as a child or an adult, the need that you have at this moment is to know in the depths of your soul that you have life in his name. And so I say, whether to the Christian or to the lost person, the essential thing that you need is life in his name. So what is the key in our text, according to John, to having life in his name? Well, start with me beginning at verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. The first thing we look at in verse 30 is a reference to Jesus doing signs. Signs have been a major part of John's gospel, haven't they? A major emphasis, both positively and negatively. In the Gospel of John. And the reference John makes here to signs is a positive one. And you remember how many times have we seen this idea. You're only believing because you had your stomach filled with the loaves. You saw the signs, but you didn't see the one the signs were pointing to. So there's a negative aspect to looking for signs and demanding evidence as we saw with Thomas. But there's also a positive focus on the signs that Jesus did. As a matter of fact, John's gospel specifically is focused on Jesus as the son of God. And we've seen that in the signs that he did that no man could ever do. Remember, that's what Nicodemus said to him in John three. He said, you must be sent from God because no one can do the things you're doing unless God's with him. You remember? And so I want to consider now this positive indication. What is it? What's the positive benefit of these signs? What's the positive purpose of these signs. We'll consider it first in the form of the negative, and hopefully that will drive and open up the positive for us. In John chapter 5, verse 48, so Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You remember the context? This official has come to Jesus, and his son is at the point of death. Jesus is pleading with him to save, to deliver his child. And Jesus says, not only to that man, you'll remember the idea of you here is a plural. Jesus turned and looked to the whole crowd and said, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It was a rebuke, a charge against them. You're not going to believe unless you see signs. And we saw in John 6 and verse 30, these people, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You remember the context there of John 6? Jesus has already fed over 5,000 people with a little bit of fish and loaves. And they have the audacity to say, what sign do you do? What work are you going to do to prove to us who you are? It's a negative thing. The negative form of seeking a sign is always manifested when people are more interested in the material blessing that's associated with the sign 
than they are the one that the sign is pointing to. These people wanted bread. They wanted the blessing, but they didn't want God. They didn't want Christ. And so John's telling us in our text, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. We know this isn't referring to just some material blessing that the sign gives you. And I wonder this, how many people today, perhaps you, how many people today are looking and desiring, longing for, desperately desiring for God to do something supernatural in their lives? Do a sign in my life, not because they want God, but because they want the benefit or the blessing that God can give them. Here's my question. Do you and I yearn for God? We pray often when we gather together corporately, we pray, God, come and move in this town and community and this church, revive our hearts, bring a real revival to this place. I think Gabe told me shortly after I moved here that the church had been praying for revival for over 25 years. And he was praying that the Lord might bring that even in us coming. And I said, brother, if it happens, it's not because I came here, but God has answered the prayers of his people. But how often are our prayers for revival Primarily because of the benefit that revival would bring upon the church. If there was a great move of God in our land, you know what? The laws would reflect that. There would probably be far fewer, if any, babies aborted and murdered in their mother's womb if there was a revival in the land. People couldn't think of that kind of unspeakable evil if there were revival. Wonderful thing for us to desire, but my question is, are we desiring revival because we want to meet with our God or because of the benefits that that supernatural work would give to us. What is it we actually want? Matthew twelve thirty nine, speaking of Jesus, but he answered them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, that's an interesting reference to a sign. People, evil people want a sign. But the sign that's given to them is the prophet Jonah. What is that talking about? What was the miracle of Jonah? You have Jonah being in the belly of a fish for three days and then being resurrected, as it were, from the depths of the sea. Jesus, who was in the belly of the earth for three days, having died a cruel death on the cross under the wrath of God, was resurrected from the dead. This is the sign he's referring to. Now, Here's the point. The sign that we're given, the sign that matters, the positive and proper use of a sign is realized when the signs cause our attention to be focused on the person of Christ and not the signs themselves. And isn't that true in the context? Just one example. Think of John 6. He's fed them bread. He's given them the fish and the loaves and they want more bread. And what is that conversation? Where does it go? Jesus ends up telling them, I the bread of life. You saw the sign and you want your stomach filled. The sign was meant to point you to me, the true bread, the living bread that's come to you from heaven. The one in whom you must trust and look to. So John's telling us, though, in our context, just those things to give us an understanding of what the, the good nature of the signs John's talking about are. But he tells us that many other signs were done in the presence of the disciples. And this happened, this took place as eyewitnesses of Christ. Now you may be saying, what does this have to do with our text today? Well, actually, it's a contrast because John's setting something up. He's saying there were many other things done and that's not actually what I'm talking about. He's just making mention of the fact that there are many other things done in front of the disciples as eyewitnesses, which are not written in this book. John mentions the fact 
that there are distinctions between the record that he's provided and the other recorded writings about Jesus. Why do you think John does this? Why does the Holy Spirit inspire John to do this? What's the point in bringing up the fact that there are things that Jesus did that others saw that you haven't talked about or written about? Well, there's a few different reasons. Let me put a few of them to you. Many atheists today and unbelievers over the years have demanded that the Gospels are unreliable because of the variations that are found in them. Have you ever heard this argument? Well, the Gospels contradict themselves. Why aren't the Gospels the same? Why does one say one thing and another thing? Another says something else or focuses on something else. Well, in our text today, God, the spirit through John is very openly declaring to us that there are differences. And here's the point. The Holy Spirit was not intending to have the gospel writers make perfect copies of one another. You might argue that the synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke, that they're very much more similar. They're very much more of a pattern than John. But even there are variations between those writers. But here's the idea. These different gospels, the distinctions that exist between the writers, they're by design and they're not by accident. God intended there to be differences he doesn't try to hide the fact. And here's, here's the interesting thing. John's not sitting down in his gospel. He wrote after the other three. John's not sitting down saying, okay, what did those guys write? Let me make sure I try to write exactly what they say to try to form some kind of a conspiracy to validate himself. That's not what's going on here. That's not what was going on in the other gospels either. And there's a very open announcement of this fact. They're not recorded. They're not written in this book. You see, these gospels were often written to different audiences. They are written from different perspectives and with different points of focus. They all focus on Christ ultimately, but they focus on different aspects of Christ. They in no way contradict one another. And each different gospel account provides necessary insights into the life of Christ. And as we could consider, and we will consider as we go, each gospel writer, if they were all to try to include every aspect of everything Jesus ever said or did, they would still be writing right now. They couldn't have lived long enough to record it all. Why do I say something like that? Well, we're not getting there near there today, but we are going on in the future. John chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse in John's gospel says this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so let me ask you this, just as a source of confidence for your soul, does the fact that not everything Jesus said or did has been written down, does the fact that all these things have not been written down for us, does that mean that we're missing essential truth? Is the word of God incomplete? Do you sit and wonder, well, I wonder what else Jesus did. If somebody came on the scene today and said, hey, guys, remember, John said that not everything was written. Well, I've got some more stuff that was written. Is that something we should be looking for? Does someone today need to come along and give us an additional word from God? Or are the words which we do have sufficient to give us life in his name? The answer is yes, they are sufficient to give us life in his name. And there is a distinction that's drawn very intentionally in verse 30. And immediately into verse 31. So there are many things that are not written in my account, John says, but into verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
He's saying that which is written is sufficient to bring you to a place of belief in Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, producing life in you. You see, the context of these verses very clearly indicates to us that there has been an intentional selection concerning what is recorded. John tells us there are many things not written, but these are written. And the choice of these particular things was not left up to John. It's not like John sitting around saying, well, let me see. I think I'll choose to include that. because Yeah, I really like that. That was special. It wasn't left up to John. And how can I say that? Well, certainly John's point of view and his personality was involved, but it was God, the spirit who directed his pen. Second Peter 1:21 says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, we are responsible creatures and our will is involved in the decisions that we make. I just want to throw out a, a side point, a, kind of a disclaimer here is I don't know of a single time in the scriptures that there's a reference to the will of man that's in a positive light. Every time we find the will of man, it's a negative thing or it's something that would take away from what God has done. Here's just one such example. The prophecy wasn't produced by the will of man. These are not written by the will of John, but the Holy Spirit is carrying him along. That means what is written has been prescribed for us by the Holy Spirit. And we can have every confidence that what God has breathed out for us is completely sufficient with no lack. Consider again from 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. For reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so, these are written by God's design. What is the end and purpose of what has been written? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So what we're finding out is the chief end of what is written, the chief end and purpose of the scriptures is that we would believe. Now, consider this, consider the powerful parallel that exists between what we're seeing here and now and what we heard last week. Consider this. Thomas was essentially doing what? He was demanding a sign. He was saying, give me some evidence. Let me have something I can touch, something I can handle. I'll believe whenever I see what I can touch. But what was it? Ultimately, that brought Thomas out of his doubt and his arrogance. The word of God. Jesus shows up and says, peace be with you. And then he speaks to Thomas directly. Thomas, come put your hands here and your fingers there. It was the spoken word of God declared from the word of God himself that brought about belief in Thomas. It wasn't touching him. It was hearing from him. The word went forth to Thomas and he believed. Now you find this. Not only that, that's a parallel too. But then Jesus goes on and says this. Blessed are they that believe not having seen. He told us that in the text last week. And now we find John picking up right where his Lord left off. Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and believe. And now John says, these are written so that you may believe. So what's the mysterious missing link here? If Jesus is saying, blessed are they that have not seen and believed. Well, if you haven't seen, then what's the source of your believing? John tells us these are written that you may believe what is written is the foundation of what is to be believed. There's an inseparable link between the word of God and our believing. 
And it cannot ultimately, as it didn't, it couldn't stay in the, the evidential realm, as we saw with Thomas. It had to go the word applied to the heart. That's what had to happen. And John is saying the exact same thing to us. So. These are written that you may believe. What does the world think about this? What is the world? What is our attitude as Christians in a world that rejects this word, this book? Well, they demand evidence. The world sets themselves up as a judge over God. And they say some things like this, that we must pacify their darkened hearts. Think of how often this happens. I was just listening to a discussion. I think maybe it was on Todd Friel's program, Wretched Radio. And he's talking, he's looking at a, a I think it was a debate between Gavin Newsom and the uh, DeSantis from Florida. And they were talking specifically about the issue of abortion and pro-life things. And they put the question to Newsom. They said, are you OK with a child being killed in the womb if there's not an extreme circumstance in the last couple of months? And Todd Friel made a very excellent observation. He said, hold on, that's not what the argument should be. As a Christian person, it shouldn't be. Is it OK to slaughter this child in the last couple of months? But what is in that womb? Is this a life made in the image of God or not? And see, we're prone to think we've got to appeal to the world where they are and say, listen, we're going to make truth and righteousness and law in light of where you think things are. Rather than looking at them and saying, this is what's written. This is what God has said. You see, the world wants, they, they tell us that we don't believe that Bible. You've got to appeal to our logic. You've got to appeal to our understanding of what's true. And we fall right into their trap when we think it's our job to bring the truth of God into the subjection of the almighty mind and will of man. This is not only limited to this text. Consider with me from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in light of these are written that you may believe and what the source of true believing it, it must be from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We could pause right there. The cross, the word, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They're not going to receive or believe it. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So this is essentially the condition. The world is in a place of unbelief and they're demanding that we meet them at their supposed wisdom. You've got to convince me. You've got to answer my objections the answer of the scriptures is this. The world does not need to be convinced according to their own standards. Even if you somehow could come up with such a perfect logical argument that you would convince them according to their standards, they still won't believe. What the world needs is to have what is written, what is written, proclaimed and applied by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must take that message preached, that word preached, that which is written, and apply it to them. 
so that they may believe. Isn't that fascinating that John doesn't say in order to have believing and life in his name, he appeals to what's written. He doesn't say that you need to have some fantastic experience or that your understanding of something else needs to deepen or grow. He says, you believe as a result of what has been written. And that is where we, too, must focus our attention. And it's not only the lost world that's in trouble over this. You know, as Christians, we're often subject to the same kind of error. Don't we imagine sometimes that what we really need is going to be found anywhere other than the word of God? That's essentially what I'm saying. We think, well, the world doesn't believe the Bible. And so if I use the Bible to try to reach them, it's circular reasoning and they're going to throw it out. I've got to appeal to them some other way. Well, sometimes as Christians, we tend to do the same exact thing. We don't go to the scriptures as our source of what we truly need to enjoy life in his name. Now, let's test this for a moment. I just made a pretty strong statement that it's often true of us as Christians that we look somewhere other than the scriptures for our enjoyment of life. Well, let me ask you this. What is it that you do when you find yourself cast down and discouraged? Where is it that you go whenever you have this sense in you that you're not enjoying life to the degree you wish you were? If you find yourself lonely or depressed or discouraged or even just frankly bored, where is it that you're going to go? Where do I go? Do you browse social media? Do you phone a friend of yours? Do you turn on the television? Do you crack open a bottle of some kind? Do you head to the kitchen for a snack? Do you go to any of these things as some sort of a hope to cure you from your ailments? Do you busy yourself with work? Don't you realize that the vast majority, if not the entirety of sorrow in the Christian's life is meant to summon us back to the source of life. When you have a feeling in your soul of dissatisfaction, discontentment, sadness, frustration, bitterness, resentment, when you have something in you that says, I'm not okay right now, anytime that happens, and every time that happens, we're going to go back to those things which we expect are going to bring us comfort, life, ease. What we need is what is written. Our, our enjoyment is going to be rooted in what is written. You see, these things, whether boredom or depression, are a constant reminder to us that we're meant to have life in His name. And the answer that God gives us to that question, where can I find life in His name, is that it can only come according to what is written. John tells us, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we started by seeing the emphasis on what is written and how what is written leads to what we believe. And now we find this, the specific nature of what it is that we're to believe. The call of God upon you is not merely to have some kind of general belief in Jesus. It's not just having some association in your heart and mind with Jesus that you don't know anything about. John specifically refers in his own gospel here, but we can apply this to all of the scriptures. God has spoken to us in order that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and he is the end of all of God's communication to man. The author to the Hebrews puts it very well in the opening lines of his account, his letter. 
He says that God has spoken to us throughout the years and many times, many ways through the prophets and through the fathers. But in these last days, he's spoken to us finally and fully in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. That's God's pattern as he's speaking to us in the person of his son. And so what we're to believe the source of life in his name. In other words, if you're as a Christian sitting there thinking, I want to have joy, I want to have encouragement, I want to have happiness and peace, I want to have purpose in my life. If you disconnect that from the reality that Jesus is the Christ, you're looking for the wrong thing. If you think you're going to have joy, if you think you're going to persevere, as we heard this morning, outside of a knowledge of Christ, Jesus as the Christ, then your focus is wrong. And so let's ask this together. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Christ, contrary to some belief, Christ is not Jesus' last name. We often use it that way. We imagine the name Christ is just like my last name's priest, his last name's Christ. No, that's not the case. It's a description. It's a title of sorts. So what does it mean? Well, linguistically, it simply means anointed. God's anointed. But historically... Christ is a reference specifically in the context of the Jews to the one God had promised would redeem and rescue his people. The Jews were anticipating a Christ from God who would deliver them. We heard one in the call to worship or in the scripture reading that Kelly read from Mark. And we saw where Peter says, he says, who do men say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. There was an expectation, and anticipation from the Jews of a Christ who would come and deliver them. We saw this first in John chapter 1 and verse 41. And after Andrew, who was following John the Baptist at the time, he begins following Jesus. It says that he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. We found the Christ. And then fast forward to John chapter 4 and verse 25. Here's another individual who wasn't in that central region within Judea, but in an outskirts. And she had family dating back to who used to be called God's people. Her, her, her tradition and her, her ethnicity did connect her at least loosely to the Jews. The Samaritan woman it says the woman said to him in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ when he comes he will tell us all things. And so Jesus being the Christ, here's an expectation of one who's coming as a redeemer for God's people, one who is going to reveal all things when he comes. And what is written, John tells us particularly, is meant to cause you and I to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the deliverer, he is the redeemer, and ultimately he is the singular hope of Israel. He is the singular hope of Israel. And I want to say this with a special reference at this point, with all of the discussion that's going on around the physical nation of Israel today, I say without any hesitation that if you have a hope for physical Jews apart from Jesus Christ, it is a vain hope. Jesus is the hope of Israel. Now, whatever else you think that means eschatologically, well, we can talk about that. But Jesus is the singular hope for Israel. Consider with me from Matthew chapter 11. Just emphasizing this reality that Jesus is the Christ. He is the expected one. Matthew chapter 11, we find in verses 1 through 6, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, 
he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Why do I read that section? Because John the Baptist there, while he's in prison, he refers to Jesus as the Christ. And he says, are you the one we're supposed to be waiting on? Are you the one we're supposed to be anticipating? And the signs that Jesus appeals to when he sends them back to John were not an end in themselves. That's exactly the point we saw in the beginning. Those signs were meant to bring attention from John the Baptist upon the fact that Jesus truly is the Christ. And how do we know that? Because those things that they reported to John were the fulfillment of what the Christ was promised to do. They were signs that he was the Christ. And the trouble in Jesus' day is that many were hoping for the wrong kind of deliverance. I'm saying this book by John is inspired by the Holy Spirit that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? Our believing in Christ is intimately related to what it means that he is Christ. So we have to know what Christ means if we're going to understand what it means to believe in him. That's my argument. What does it mean that he is Christ? What does it mean that he's delivered? Look with me for just a moment at Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one, we're given a glorious prophetic word concerning Jesus Christ. By the father of John the Baptist, we were just looking at John the Baptist and his own interactions with Jesus and wrestling through whether he was the Christ or not. Consider with me what his own father said after he's been deaf and dumb during the duration of his mother's pregnancy. And now that he's now that his son's born, he's given the ability to speak once again. And what does he say to us? Beginning in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Here's the idea of what the Christ would come to do. He's going to visit and redeem his people. Verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Now, up until this point, most of the Jews could probably get along with this. They could say, yes, there's one promise to this people from David all the way back to Abraham delivered from enemies. Yes, Messiah, who's going to conquer and redeem and deliver. That's very good. But then it keeps going. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Now, here's the foreign concept. Here's the thing you've got to understand about what it means that he's the Christ. It has everything to do with forgiveness of sins. Who are these enemies? Who are all those who hate us? Who are those who threaten our life? Who are those who threaten us with the sentence of judgment of God in wrath and hell? Who are those enemies? It's not the Romans. It's not the enemies you think you have today. It's not those who oppress you. It's your own sin 
because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. Zechariah is saying as the Holy Spirit moves him and carries him along that this Messiah, this Christ, this one coming, this mighty deliverer, his deliverance has to do with the forgiveness of sins, which tells us that to believe if we're going to believe according to what's written, it means that you must see Jesus as your Christ, your deliverer from all your enemies, the one who's going to deliver you from your sins. And the next logical question that comes It's so concise. This is probably one of the most clearest, concise gospel statements in all the Bible here in verse 31. These are written, the word of God, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The next thing we ask, we've considered it's written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Here's the question. How is it that a man called Christ can deliver If truly being the Christ has to do with your sins being forgiven, then how is it that a man can be one to deliver your sins? Think of it this way. This promised Messiah was to be a descendant of David. What does that mean? If the one who's going to sit on this throne is a direct descendant of David, he's prophesied to be born of a man. Now, we know the Holy Spirit is the one by whom Jesus was conceived, but he's in this bloodline that descended from David. And we're told again in Isaiah that he would be a child unto us. A child is born. So if it's a child born, that means it's a man. But then here, John immediately reminds us that though he's a man, though he is the Christ, the one promised that he's not only a man, he's also the son of God. Now, if there is one single emphasis that most stands out in what is written in the gospel of John, it is the testimony of Jesus As the son of God, if there's one thing that stands out most clearly to us, it's Jesus is God. John 1, 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And see, here's the point. Here's the reality. There's something supernatural that's able to happen to you as you hear what is written and God applies it to your heart so that, you know, this word is God. He's the son of God. Isn't that exactly what happened in John chapter one, verse forty nine? You remember that Nathaniel's there and he's under the fig tree and Jesus sees him whenever he comes to Jesus, doubtful to a degree. Jesus tells him, I saw you under the fig tree. Jesus speaks the word to him, revealing who he is, revealing what he knows. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Here's the point. Why must he be not only Christ, not only one who's come to redeem, if he's going to redeem us by giving us forgiveness of sins, he must be able to absorb the wrath of God for us. No mere man can be our substitute. And John tells us these are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and not only a man, he's the son of God. And it is absolutely essential that you see him to be God. And the way in which we're going to come to believe that is, again, according to what is written. Am I emphasizing that too much? Do you think, okay, brother, 
You've told us several times today how important it is that we see that this was written. This is what was written. Why do I go on emphasizing that? Because I say again, we're very slow to go back to the words of life that are given to us by God for encouragement. We often think of the Scriptures as something that it's hard to get through. It's, it's discouraging to me. I read it. I don't understand always what it means. But how sweet, how glorious a thing is it whenever you take and you invest yourself in what is written and God is pleased to open up just a little bit of it and you taste it. And it's so sweet when you see what it means to you. When you come to understand these words, what does it say? It's sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. There's a sweetness in the word of God. What is written? But these are written. That by believing you may have life in his name. Now, this is the final point I want to camp out on with you for just a moment or a few moments, as it were. I want to reiterate everything we've been saying up until now is in order for us to understand and know that we have life in his name. So I ask again. What is life in His name? I've been saying that a lot. I told you in the beginning, there's a world of difference between having life and having life in His name. We know, for example, in John 1 and verse 4, we're told, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the source of all life. He upholds all things by the word of His power. It's Jesus who is the one who is allowing for every unbelieving person to breathe and curse Him with every breath. He's the one sustaining their life. Jesus is the source of life. But the life we're promised in His name goes further than this. And so I want to know what is it? How do you know? As a Christian here today, would you say, I'm experiencing the life that John's telling me about here? Am I coming to an experience of God that leads me to say, I have a life and it's not just physical. There's more to this life than just the physical. Is that what you're experiencing now? When Jesus high priestly prayer in John 17, three, he told us this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what does this tell us? What does this mean to have life in his name means that you not only agree with and recognize that your life and your very existence flows from him. But it means that Jesus Himself is the spiritual fountain from which you drink. You, you actually know Him. You actually relate with Him. You have a personal and intimate relationship with Christ. Consider it this way from Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. Listen, what does it mean to have life in His name? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. If Christ, if you have life in his name, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says this. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, notice this. He's talking about something future tense at the end. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That's yet to happen. And until that happens, Christ who presently is your life. You get the point? To have life in His name. What does it mean to have life in His name? Let me ask it this way. Is Jesus Christ your life? Is He your life? Or is He merely an aspect of your life? 
Is he someone you run to when you're in trouble or someone you think about only periodically or maybe only when we gather here? Or is he the very heart and center of your existence? Now, don't be too quick to answer this. I want you to think about this for a moment. You know how I can tell you if Jesus is your life or not? And I'm not saying you're unconverted necessarily, but perhaps. But at the very least, I would say as a Christian, you may be struggling immensely if you're guilty of what I'm about to describe. There are many people who would say, Jesus is my life. And what they mean is they sit around all the time thinking, meditating about who they think he is. And everything that they do is completely detached from what is written. You see the point here? If you detach your understanding of the Christ from what is written, you're bound to go astray. You see the emphasis here. There's a woman, I think her name's Sarah Young, who has a book called Jesus Calling. And it's all about private interactions from Jesus and hearing words from Jesus simply on private meditations. And it's wonderful to have private meditations with God, but you can't replace what is written. You can't look to something above and beyond what is written as though it's got greater hope for you experiencing the life that is promised in his name. This is fundamental that we understand this. So I ask again, is Jesus as he's revealed in what is written, the heart of your existence. Can you say with Paul in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We often <clears throat> perhaps read that scripture and our mind, our eyes immediately go to the die is gain part. That's an incredible thing to hear. If I tell you, if I die, it's gain. It's better if I die. That's a bold thing to say. But how incredible to live is Christ. All that I do. It's not as though I've got some side of my life over here. My church life. That's Jesus. Everything else, well, depends what I'm doing. I can tell you this. I was asked one time when we moved to Texas, right? And uh, Wyatt, I guess, was about four months old. We moved down there. And at the time, I'd been converted within a couple of years, but very inconsistent in the goings on of the church. And I remember years later, I ended up talking on the phone after a couple of years with Ronnie Qualls. And after he got off the phone with me, he, he told me later, he thought, what happened to this guy? And he wanted to find some explanation that was going to be found in the context of the church down there. And granted, it's a wonderful church and I love those people very much. But I've come to realize something and I believe this is true as far as what it means, Christ, who is your life, this life in his name. I realized something later on looking back. It wasn't, I don't believe, that particular church, though it was an incredible means of grace. It wasn't anything inherently special in me. I'll tell you what happened. The Lord moved me and my family to a place where I knew virtually no one. I had no family, no close acquaintances, no one that I knew well. All I had was my wife and my young child. And everything was ripped from me. I was in financial straits. I had nothing but God. And Christ was my life. It developed from a humility and brokenness where I was looking for life. And there was nowhere to be found life anywhere outside of Him. And so I began to live in light of Him as my life. And yes, it affected my involvement in the church and my family and everything. And it's continued to. But it was no longer, what am I going to do for Jesus whenever I have some time? But everything became about Him. And that's not just true for preachers and pastors. It's you as well. Is Christ your life? Do you have life in his name? And you see, this is what you've got to get to. To summarize and conclude our thoughts, move towards. Let me put it this way again to you. The written word, 
We go back to this. The written word of God is the primary means that God uses to grant to grant. So if you're unconverted, it's the written word of God. God primarily uses his written word to bring about salvation, to grant spiritual life, but also to sustain the spiritual life of his people. It is not a cliche if you're a Christian who's struggling. Go to the scriptures. Get in the word of God. See Jesus here. And I'll tell you this. If you're going to the scriptures as a Christian looking for encouragement and you're not looking for Jesus, you're not going to have the life in his name that's being described here. If you're looking for some moral influence and you're just wanting to have a better life and follow some good principles, well, you may find those things, but you're not going to find life in his name. That's the goal. That's the focus. Seeing Jesus, believing in him and having life in his name to be converted, but also to be sustained. But this life is not to be. I emphasize the written word, but that's not because it's to be a cold head knowledge that never touches the emotions. You know, what's fascinating. This very one, John, who says these are written, the emphasis on the word. He's the same one who describes himself as what? The disciple whom the Lord loved. This one who so emphasizes the written word also says this God, this Christ loves me. He's consumed by this emotion and attachment to Christ. The argument is this. We are meant to know the living God, to relate with him, to love him. And if you want to have if you want to know what is the fuel which is going to burn in the fire of your heart, the fuel is the word of God. I don't think you can improve upon the description was given by the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones that the Christian life is logic on fire. It's when the truth of this book ignites in your soul and you see God in his word and you love the God you see. You don't just have a cold word and you don't just have raw emotion with no structure in the word. But when the two come together. The world gets turned upside down. So my prayer is that you and I would find our joy, our peace, our sense of confidence, our enjoyment of life in his name as a result of the spirit opening up what is written to us. And let me just say this in closing. The unconverted. Where are you going to go to find life? What's going to be the source of your joy? What's going to be the, the thing you look to to deliver you? Do you realize how gracious God has been to you? God has said to you, listen, through all the feeling of dissatisfaction, I'm telling you that you're never going to be satisfied in those things. Look to the one who does, who gives life in his name. It's the enemy of your soul who's come to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus said, I came that they may have a life and have it abundantly. This is an experience of life in the soul that connects the soul of man with the word of God and with the God of the word. So the charge is, Jesus says to you, repent and believe in the one. Jesus Christ, whom it's all written to us about. I pray that you, your soul would be encouraged. And so we'll go ahead and pray to close this portion and then we'll prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. If you'll bow with me. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I thank You for this book. And I thank You that it's more than a book. That it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to pierce us, to run us through, to cut and convict us. 
Oh, but God, you are a God who's come to bind up those who've been pierced by your word and your son and give life. Father, I pray that these things would remain with us, that we would ever be looking to you as the source of life. I praise you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.